It's an absolute mess. And so the Sultan Murad realizes that he just, he can't take Korea before the winter. And obviously you don't want to have 100,000 men camped out in the winter in a hostile territory with your supply lines being raided. Right. No, of course like That's not. how you get 100,000 dead icicles. <laughs> it's a popsicle party. Welcome to We Talk About Dead People, a podcast where we talk about dead people. I'm your host, Aaron C., and I'm here with my good friend and co-host, George. Say hi, George. Hey. Hey. We hope to keep our listeners entertained and interested while we break down various members of the odd and exciting family that is humanity. The way this works is that George and I will do our amateurish best to give a basic account of the major events in the life of a now-dead person and give a fairly accurate depiction of their individual character, which is so much harder to do, but we're going to try anyway because fuck it. So, George, who do we have for today? Today, we are going to talk about George. Hell yeah, George Solidarity. George Castriotti. And if you haven't heard that name, don't worry. He is generally known by a different name, which you probably have also never heard. And that name is Skanderbeg. I prefer that one because Castriotti sounds like Castrato, and I, I don't know. I don't like thinking about that. I mean, and but on the other hand, George, like George, everybody loves George. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> George. George. <laughs> so, uh, so George, before we even get into it, I think the audience really wants to know. I got a special request from the president himself. Um, he wants to know, uh, oh, I didn't, I didn't tell you, uh, which president, by the way. <laughs> Did you all just assume my president? Uh, he wants to know how your Thanksgiving was. It was pretty good. You know, I didn't get nearly as much work done as I should have, but that's how it always works over breaks. Um, I didn't bring any grading home with me, which was nice, but that just meant as soon as I got, you know, back into the swing of things, I had a shitload of work to do. But, you know, on the whole, it was nice. I had a lot of pie. I'm a big fan of pie. Nice. What about you? Did you, you bring anyone to Thanksgiving? Um, I did, yeah. I brought a, I brought a friend, um, co-worker, to my, uh, to my family's place for Thanksgiving, which was nice. It was, it was good. Otherwise, he was just going to have one of those lonely Thanksgivings alone in a place where you have no friends, which we've all been there, so. Oh, yes. Many times. Uh, I was, I wanted to make you say that because I thought it was so sweet that you would bring somebody who was going to have a lonely Thanksgiving into your humble abode. Yeah. Do you, you want something, credit. Aaron? Uh, beer. <laughs> uh, yeah, my Thanksgiving was pretty interesting. We actually don't have a house right now. And by we, I mean my family. Don't have, We don't have a house. It's under renovation. Uh, so we met at an Airbnb on a, on a frozen lake somewhere in Wisconsin. And uh, the power went out while we were cooking. So that was good. Um, but we got it turned back, back on. We uh, There was a moment where I thought I was going to have to pick a lock on a door in order to get to the... The fuse box, but I didn't end up having to do that. We found the key and uh, got in, and Thanksgiving was saved, but not the turkey. How did you? Um, did you have a deep fried turkey? No. Did no. you? No. I've only, those are my. I. It's just such a ridiculously wonderful American thing to do. I've only had one once, but it's really something. If you ever get a chance, I strongly recommend you try the deep fried turkey. Okay, I'll keep that in mind next time I want to turn into what half of America looks like. Okay, so, without further ado, shall we head down to the History Lab and get started on this, this Skanderberg guy, Skanderbeg guy? Hell yeah, let's do it. All right. 
centuries before psychopathic communist assholes were murdering people with radiation and building pointless bunkers, southeastern Europe had a little problem called the Ottoman Empire. Find out how one man got really tired of Turks and their bullshit and was like, I am a head out. Join us as we follow the epic tale of Skanderbeg and the origins of Albania. As if anybody cares. <laughs> so, George, who is someone you really want to cover on the show and haven't, and why? Well, ultimately, I would love to do the Emperor Augustus since he's quite literally one of the most important people in world history in terms of the effect he's had. But there's just so much background about Roman government and Roman social things, and Roman religion, and it just it's almost impossible to compress Augustus down into even a multi-part episode. But one day I'm going to do it. One what day. What about you? Uh, you know, recently I've been really wanting to cover Winston Churchill again, but I think in the interest of not just saying that over and over again, I'll I'll answer the question another way. Um, I've really, really wanted to cover for a good long while and just haven't. Uh, <clears throat> the Lewis and Clark expedition. Oh, that would be fun. Yeah, because, uh, I don't know, I, I find it to be a fascinating story in a lot of ways. But the reason I haven't done it is because it doesn't have the level of detail that I want, at least not, you know, on the internet. Or, you know, I have to buy books for this shit to do it right. And it would be a multi multi-part series, and it's all complicated, and, you know, it deals with native and colonial politics and you know all that stuff and that's always touchy and i always like to give that you know a fair time and a fair shake but we'll get there lewis and clark will come i promise <clears throat> and with that let's see here i think we should get started don't you yeah i no i think so too and <clears throat> i really really don't trust you to pronounce uh jerish castriotti correctly and we can't afford to let the computer get infected with weird Albanian ransomware. So you, you better not screw this up is what I'm saying. I mean, the computer is already infected with, I think it's Albanian ransomware. It's some Eastern European country that uh, they got us by the balls, man. I'm not going to lie. All the Bitcoin's gone. They took my goddamn oh, sandwich. God. You know, all I see on my computer are ads for like fucking hentai and shit. It's awful. But we will soldier on nonetheless. <clears throat> Computer, please bring up Skanderbeg. Uh, yeah, look at me. I didn't have to pronounce George. So, Aaron, what do you think of when you hear Albania? Uh, well, obviously. Other um, than the bad guys in Taken. Uh, okay, um, shit. Well, uh, then definitely, uh, um. Not computer viruses either. Okay, not not computer version. All right, how about um, and shit. not organ or drug trafficking. What? Are there any other kind of Albanians? Uh, you've got me. I honestly don't know anything about Albania. I don't didn't even know it was a country until just now. Well, that is why we are here today. Because while there are certainly reasons that all those terrible things are what people generally associate with Albania, and plus there's the whole Kosovo situation in the north. Um, there's a lot of Albanian history that's actually amazing and worth talking about, and that doesn't necessarily include arguing about territorial claims with the inhabitants of neighboring countries in broken English in YouTube comment sections. <laughs> All right, that sounds great. Uh, 
I'm going to tell you right now, I'm ready to get started. Let's do it. Okay. So, as you, or really probably anyone listening, can guess at this point, because I'm extremely predictable, we've got to start with some background. Everybody loves background. Always. always. Literally always. So, <laughs> who exactly are the Albanians? It's kind of a harder question than you might think, because they're not Romans, they're not Greeks, they're not Slavs, they're not Germans, they're not Celts, and so on down the list. They are, in fact, one of those nations that is pretty much its own thing, without really having a bunch of cousin cultures like most most people do. Hmm. Um, yeah, because, you know, if you think, like, the G Germanic people, you've got Germans, Dutch, Scandinavians, you know, they're all related. Celts have Scotch, Irish, Breton, Welsh, but the, the Albanians don't really have any culture they're related to. Interesting. Um, yeah, the earliest reference to Albanians as as a people is actually in an 11th century Bulgarian text, which doesn't really say anything about them other than that they're half-believers, which is what this text uses to refer to Christians who aren't part of the Orthodox Church, um, because Albanians at that point were mostly Catholic, um, and that they live nomadically in the mountains. So that's our first, uh, our first reference to Albanians as a people, is half-believers who live in the mountains. Very much like West Virginia. <laughs> I was about to make that exact joke, except it was about Montana. So, <laughs> but people know. don't live there. That's true. <laughs> yeah. So who exactly are the Albanians and where they came from is a very disputed issue. They might, and I really emphasize might here, be descended from the ancient Illyrian people who are known from Greek and Roman sources, but no one can really say for sure about that. Gotcha. Um, okay. So yeah, we don't really know who they are. The language they speak, Albanian, or in Albanian, ship, is uh, really, really weird. It's a very far out language. <laughs> um, yeah. Sorry, oh, you just made me think of the sip meme. <laughs> <laughs> ship. So there isn't actually any surviving material in the Albanian language until the 15th century, which is Dang. just wild. Um, in fact, yeah. Actually, I'm, I'll talk about in a minute what makes it unique among Indo-European languages. But it is the latest attested Indo-European language out of the 300, almost 400 languages in that group. This is the last one that anybody wrote in. Really? Yeah. Interesting. So the oldest single thing we have in Albanian is a single sentence from 1462, which is actually the baptismal formula. You know, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son, etc. And it's contained in a letter, which is in Latin written by an Albanian Catholic bishop who wanted to provide a good translation for Albanian Catholics who didn't understand the Latin, um, but were going to, you know, hear the baptismal prayer. So he, he included uh, his translation of the Latin prayer into Albanian for people. And that is the earliest surviving piece of written Albanian that we have. Making, making something in church uh, not Latin, that sounds very Protestant to me. I don't know about this guy, George. <laughs> Questionable, questionable indeed. <laughs> Don't worry. I think I think this was a. They were the sacrament is still performed in Latin. This is just so that he can explain what the words mean. Um, oh, accurately. okay, okay, okay. And this is my favorite fun fact. Um, there is a reference to the Albanian language existing, not a quote in Albanian, but a reference to it from 1285 from the city of Ragusa, which is on the Adriatic coast and which was an Italian city, but it was adjoining. Albanian areas, because most of the coast of Albania that we would think of as actually inhabited by Italians, where Albanians live inland. 
So there's a preserved record of a robbery investigation. Somebody like, you know, the, the detective in 1285 was like taking notes on his parchment. And uh, <laughs> we, have the, we have the investigation record and it includes a witness statement in Latin. Audivi unam vocam clamantam in monte in lingua albanesca, which means I heard a voice shouting on the mountainside in the Albanian language. And this is our <laughs> earliest reference to the Albanian language is that somebody who is a witness to a robbery heard someone shout something in Albanian. Well, that's some useful information. Now yes. we know who we're dealing with. Yep. yep. Um, and it's just, I'm sure Greek nationalists have a field day with the fact that the earliest reference to the Albanian language is about a robbery, but that's neither here nor there. <laughs> So what makes Albanian so weird is that it's an independent Indo-European language. Uh, that is, it's not closely related to any other language. Uh, another example huh. of that is Armenian. So okay. Indo-European languages are the languages that stretch from Western China all the way across Europe, you know, to, to Iceland, Scandinavia, are all related, and they all descend from something which we, we call, for lack of a better term, Proto-Indo-European, which is probably what people are speaking, you know, five or 6,000 years ago before all these languages descend from it. And so Albanian and Armenian are both descended from it, but have no relatives. So, like, take German. German has sort of, like, a bunch of phases. So it's like, you know... Old Germanic, Proto-Germanic, and like you have a bunch of phases where it has relatives before you get back to Indo-European. Albanian has no relatives or cousins. So how Indo-European became Albanian in a way that no other languages were on the same trajectory is hard to say. No, that's easy. It's They're aliens, obviously. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> but then why do they speak an Indo-European language at all? Um, To blend in. Mmm, suspicious. So it's an invented Indo-European language. You know what? I just love how amped up you are about a frickin' language. Most people are, would be so bored <laughs> with this, but you're just like going... But I also know something that the listeners don't know about uh, George's coffee consumption. Yeah. Share, George. Well, uh, normally I bring a big thermos of espresso with me to work every day, but this morning I made the thermos of espresso but forgot to bring it. So when I got back from work, which was shortly before we began recording, I downed the whole thing, which was probably eight or ten shots of espresso. <laughs> <coughs> You're killing me, man. I'm dying over here. Oh, I'm I am amped, man. Trust me. Plus, Indo-European linguistics always gets me excited. I. I have no doubt they do. I mean, we and everyone gets excited with that. We all know that. Anyway, so all of this to say that Albanians are a pretty unique group um, with a weird language and that they don't have a super, like, clear or well-defined history or identity. They're just kind of there and they're not related to anyone else. And it's not even really certain where the name Albanian comes from. It might be from an ancient tribe in that area, which are called the Albanoi who may or may not have anything to do with the later Albanians, it may be that the name just carried over because they were in the same location. So we don't know if the ancient Albanoi were the ancestors of modern Albanians, or if Albanian just became an adjective because they were in the place that the Albanoi lived 2,000 years ago. We just don't know. We just don't know. Okay. They're just yeah, there in the Balkans uh, to the northwest of Greece, uh, but they never really had any political unity, let alone having an actual state. Um, okay. At any point, um, there were no, they were 
usually ruled by a lot of important families who were at the top of society and had a sort of clan structure. So, you know, you have, a, you know, a dozen, couple dozen important families that other smaller families are kind of pledged to, but you don't really have an organized state. You basically just have an extended clan structure. And occasionally okay. one family would gain enough power and influence to kind of make a state. Um, but usually they were always dependent on part of a larger regional power, such as the Byzantine Empire, or later the Kingdom of Serbia, the Despotate of Epirus, the Republic of Venice. So sometimes Albania would all be ruled by one of the families, but they would be ruling it on behalf of a larger empire and as sort of a semi-autonomous part. So there was no Albanian state. Gotcha. So, and uh, we have to, I want to go a little bit, now jumping back to give a little bit of the religious background... Um, when the Roman Empire was divided into East and West in 395, uh, the area that's now Albania became part of the Byzantine Empire. And at the end of the 12th century, the northern part of Albania became part of the Kingdom of Serbia. At one point in the late 13th century, part of Albania was even a French Kingdom of Albania, because the French had some weird territorial claims through marriage, and it's all very confusing. But you would just, what's now Albania is always being ruled by someone else, and they're usually not there for long because things are constantly shifting. And so Albania just kind of does its own thing with its family clans while generally technically being part of some larger political ent entity, but actually just retaining this sort of clan structure. I see. Um, their religion also ends up being mixed. Um, so although the country was very close to Byzantium geographically, uh, Christians in the region remained under the jurisdiction of the Patriarch of Rome, that is the Pope, as opposed to the, you know, the Bishop of Constantinople, um, until right. 732 when the Byzantine Emperor Leo III, who was pissed off because the bishops in the region had supported Rome rather than the Patriarch of Constantinople in the iconoclastic controversy, which is a long, hairy theological issue about images that we can't get into here. But anyway, the Albanian bishops had supported Rome, not Constantinople. And so the emperor gets angry and he detaches the region from the Roman pope's jurisdiction and makes it part of the jurisdiction of the Patriarch of Constantinople. And when the Great Schism between East and West occurred in 1054, it pretty much broke a north-south line through Albania with the south remaining with Constantinople and thus technically becoming Orthodox, while the North retained Catholicism and was under the ecclesiastical control of Rome. That information dump you just gave was ridiculous. It was only improved by the, the um, ecstatic, over-enthused coffee voice you have right now. <laughs> it's just... See, I sound normal to myself through my headphones, so I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, you sound like you're jacked right now. <laughs> oh, I'm always jacked. Oh, that's funny. Um, yeah, holy shit. Um, hey, I, I have a question for you, and it's a, it's a personal question. Oh. Are we ever going to do another episode with you about another non-Catholic? <laughs> or are we just Catholics all the way down now? I mean, look, I'm sorry that people who are Catholic happen to be badass throughout history, Aaron. Maybe you should take some time-traveling Protestants and try to do some badass things in history so I can cover them. Yeah, well, okay, yeah, you can cover a time-traveling Protestant um, eventually, I promise. Plus, there's also the problem that Protestants don't exist before the 16th century, which is also around the time that my general interest in things takes a nosedive. <laughs> 
Fair. That fair. makes it problematic <laughs> since my interests kind of stop there, which is when Protestantism starts. So as a result, the people who are in the time period I really am interested in are not going to be Protestant. Yeah, well, but I mean, I'm to be sorry, fair, my facts the... and logic offend you. <laughs> Easy there, Ben Shapiro. <laughs> uh, no, I was going to say, uh, it's funny because every time we cover a Protestant, I'm just like, fucking Protestants? <laughs> like, but every time we cover a Catholic, I'm like, oh man, so now we got to cover some bad Catholics at some point. Okay, promise me we'll cover a bad Catholic. Okay, we, we, I will, I will pledge to you that we will cover a bad Catholic. All right, now please carry on. <laughs> Okay, so, um, as we said, last last paragraph before Aaron's bullshit, um, basically half of Albania is Catholic, half is Orthodox. But over the next few okay. centuries, religious boundaries tend to shift a lot as areas sort of come in and out of the sphere of influence of Orthodox powers like the Byzantines, the Bulgarians, and the Serbs, and Catholic powers like the Venetians, the French, the Italians. Um, so it's pretty much who... You know, you have constantly shifting boundaries of what's Catholic and what's Orthodox. And um, as the Middle Ages go on and Byzantine power is really crumbling, Orthodoxy also wanes uh, because, despite the best efforts of the Serbs, who, although they had initially welcomed Catholic influence as a good counter to the influence of the Byzantines, actually end up very aggressively opposing the spread of Catholicism in the Balkans. Um, Catholicism is on the rise in the Middle Ages because the Greeks are becoming irrelevant because the Byzantine Empire is basically falling apart. So Albania is getting more and more Catholic. And by the end of the 14th century, Albania was largely Catholic with pockets of orthodoxy, mostly among those nobles who were closely aligned with the Serbian Empire. But as empires do, <laughs> the Serbian Empire begins to fall in about 355 to 370 is when that's really happening. And most of its significant port cities, which are on the Albanian coast, are captured by the Venetians. And the remainder of Albania kind of just reverts to its clan structure, um, with different clans being vassals to different groups, uh, mostly the Albanians and the Serbs. Um, and plus, there's still an area that's held by the French, which I know it doesn't make sense. But the point is, Albania <laughs> does not have unity literally ever. Like in yeah, anything. I was going to say. Like they don't have religious unity. They don't have political unity. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, but now, in hold up. Hold up. Yes. Hold up. Hold, is it you've, you've written 1355, 1358. I just want to ask, is it 355? No, no, no. We're in the middle. No, no. We're in the Middle Ages. Okay. Because I was I was going to say that sounds three, but it's, it sounds right. But like the next four dates on here in the not script is 1300s. Yes. Were you jacked on coffee when you wrote this too? No, wait, what, where did I... I'm confused. Where did I write 355? No, it's 1355. Uh, yeah, you said 355 to 371. Oh, did I? Sorry. Yeah, I meant yeah. 1355 to 1371. Okay, 1355 yes. to 1371, everybody. I know it's important to you that we get all the numbers right. Oh, um, yes. You know, <laughs> you know how much I love math. Well, I wasn't talking about you. I was talking about our... Uh, our um, Oh, fuck. Was, what was that movie about the dude who was, like, an assassin, but also, like, super smart, and he, like, rode all over the walls or whatever? It came out recently with Ben Affleck. What was that oh, called? Oh, um, The Accountant? The Accountant. Our, whoever, the, the accountant out there listening to this is like, thank God they fixed it. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, that would have right. been bad. I do not want to get murdered by a mathematician. Yeah, please, no. <laughs> Kill you with his addition oh, God. by subtraction. <laughs> that sounds like a weird innuendo that I'm going to ignore. Um, no. 
<laughs> anyway, so in 1358, an Albanian nobleman named Karl Topia um, rises in rebellion against the rule of the House of Anjou, that is the French who rule part of Albania for God only knows why. And he actually manages to drive them out of Albania from his little stronghold in the city of Duris, which is a coastal port in central Albania. So he wages a nice little insurgency and ends up kicking the French out, which is something we can generally always feel good about no matter what the circumstances <laughs> are. Um, and from there, he actually ends up ruling most of central Albania uh, for the next few decades under the title which he gives himself, which is Princeps Albaniae, that is Prince of Albania, even though he only controls about a third of it. But it's nice. This is more unity than you usually get. That's Albania. pretty ballsy to just co to just come out against the French and call yourself the Prince of Albania. Yeah, when you literally don't have most of Albania. <laughs> but <laughs> in 376, an army of French... You said it again! Oh, God. 1376. Ah, 1376. Sorry, I... Can't you read? <laughs> it's too much no, coffee. I'm You're illiterate. Just... I have to memorize the script every time. <laughs> So in 1376, an army of French and Navarrese mercenaries under a Navarrese prince who was technically the heir to this weird French Albanian kingdom that I'm still not sure why it existed, um, invade and they actually um, seize that's the city of um, Durez for a while and like hold out until 1383. So I don't know what their plan was because they were just like mercenaries with this prince who were gonna take the city. But then they just take the city, and obviously they're in the middle of Albania, so they just kind of stay there. I don't really know what the plan <laughs> for this expedition was, but eventually, um, after several years, uh, eight years later, Carl uh, Topia finally kicks out these mercenaries and takes back his city. So good for him. Um, yeah. <laughs> but then... Carl Topia. Carl Topia. <laughs> it's like a utopia. It's a Carl Topia. Yeah, that's literally his city, Carl Topia. Yeah. It's not yep. even Albanian. It's just, there is no Albania, there's only Carl. <laughs> but as we know, whenever things tend to go well, usually they then go really poorly. And Obviously. this is what happens. In 1385, our boy Carl Topia was having some pretty serious issues with the ruler of a neighboring little kingdom, Balsha II, um, whose kingdom was sort of Montenegro and northern Albania-ish, to put it in the modern borders. And he was really aggressively trying to expand, and he had gotten some sort of deal worked out with the Venetians to uh, let him expand, because obviously the Venetians are more powerful than any single individual little Albanian chief. Uh, right. So the Venetians kind of give him the go-ahead. I was going to say, and legitimately so, because <laughs> Venice was kind of the center of everything. Uh, or not... I don't even know if that's the right way to put it. How would you describe it? The Venetians had a the lot Venetians of The Venetians were... Basically, they were America of the 15th century. They were a world power. And people don't realize that because it's one. It's like one city. It's like a second-rate city within Italy, which is already a country people aren't afraid of. So it's weird. But during parts of the Middle Ages, the <laughs> Venetians were literally a world power. That's so weird to think about. Like, they built a city on the water and became a freaking world power and nobody even thinks about it anymore they're just like yeah. oh look there's gondolas <laughs> <laughs> yeah we should do it we should do an episode on venice at some point because it's their history is pretty nuts i feel like that's one that you should do yeah probably i don't, I don't trust you with that <laughs> <laughs> yeah don't trust me with venice I, it will go full uh full uh, italian job on you oh boy 
So anyway, and then uh, Jason Statham took down. No, okay, sorry. Jason Stereo. Statham took down the Doge. That's the best thing about Venice. Their leader is called the Doge, and I just think of you know Doge. Right. <laughs> I okay. Look, I've heard it's. I've heard people pronounce it Doge and Doge, and I don't know which one it is, but I think Doge is funnier. Yeah, probably. Probably anyway, a rare, probably so, a forbidden opinion there. <laughs> controversial. All right. So um, Balsha the second uh, seizes the city of Duras from Carl, and it's like one. It's probably the most important city in that region. It's got a port. It's a big center of trade and stuff, and so it's a super important city. And Carl is obviously very upset that it was taken from him. And despite the fact that he's generally aligned himself with the Venetians and tried to, you know, stay on their good side, he's really desperate since the Venetians have kind of given Balsha the go-ahead. So he asks for the Ottoman Turks' help in defeating Balsha. And we know how this goes. You never ask for outside help when you're in some sort of situation. Like, literally, when has it ever gone well for anyone? Uh, never, I believe. Is it it actually never? If you're having a fight with your neighbors, folks, please do not invite the Ottoman Empire in to help you. Hold on, let let me check the documents here. Oh, yeah, shit, right here it says it never works to ask for outside help. There, shit, it, there right you go, here. it's been verified. You see? It's been verified. <laughs> so, yeah, if you're having a fight with your neighbor, please do not invite the Ottoman Empire in to assist you. It's just not <laughs> worth it. They'll steal all your your small footstools. All right. <laughs> <laughs> so, the Ottomans were only too willing to help out um, Carl and... Since they're pretty close by in Albania, since the edge of the Ottoman Empire is in what's now Macedonia, or I guess now they call it North Macedonia. I can't keep up with this crap. Anyway, it's nearby. (laughs) um, Because the Byzantine Empire at this point is kind of just a pocket around Constantinople. So remember, Constantinople doesn't end up falling until 1452 or 3 or sometime in there. But... Mm -hmm. It's the Byzantine Empire has just kind of been leapfrogged by the Ottomans because Constantinople is an incredibly hard city to take. So they just kind of skip over it. And so you have this little tiny Byzantine Empire that's just a pocket around Constantinople and a pocket further south in Greece in the Peloponnese with the Ottoman Empire on both sides of it. Fake empire. Yeah. (laughs) So the Ottomans send an army over and unsurprisingly... Uh, in the battle called the Battle of Savra, the Ottomans trounce Balsha, who was in no way prepared for the scale of this Ottoman expedition. Like, we're talking tens of thousands of people when this was just a fairly local little dispute between two kind of petty kings. Yeah, I bet that got a little scary for, uh, for, a um, fuck, Balsha? Balsha? Was it Balsha who Balsha, asked for yeah. help? Yeah. No, yeah. no, Carl asked um, for the help. To, to get oh, Carl Topia, right. Yeah. So I'm, I bet he got a little scared when he saw this. He's like, uh-oh, I may have made a mistake. It's sort of like, uh, well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and you are correct. Um, so Balsha was killed in the battle, um, and since the Ottomans were victorious, most of the local Serbian and Albanian nobles uh, became vassals to the Turks in some sense. Um, mm-hmm. So they accepted Turkish dominion but kind of retained their little you know, tribal kingdoms. But immediately after this battle, uh, Karl Topia recaptures Duras, his city, uh, probably with Ottoman help, though it's not clear in the sources if they were there or not, but they probably helped him retake his city, which is what he wanted in the first place. But within a year, and probably because, as you said, he realized he'd fucked up, uh, he's back on board with Venice and enters into a formal alliance with Venice in the year 1386, and actually holds on to Duras despite repeated Ottoman attacks on the city to take it. 
So he 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 saw the air of his ways and returned to the fold. Yeah. I, and I eventually, however, uh, after Carl dies, the city comes back into Venetian control. Uh, since he was working with Venice when he died, the Venetians took over the city in 1392. But the inland regions of Albania, where all those Serbian and Albanian lords have their little kingdoms and tribal states and stuff, were still largely under Ottoman control since that battle where Bolsha got killed. Ah, oh, man. You pay your bill every time. Yep. Yep. In 13... 13- 89, uh, several rulers from fractured parts of what had been the Serbian Empire, which used to be really, really big, but it fallen apart after uh, their, one of their kings died, uh, they all came together to oppose Ottoman expansion through the Balkans, because all these different sort of little Serbian states were like, look, none of us stand a chance against the Turks on our own, so we need to come together to fight them. And so they come together under a a man named Prince Lazar of Moravian Serbia, as it was called, and form an army, about 30,000, it's believed, and they confront an Ottoman force of about 40,000, led by the Sultan himself, Sultan Murad, and this is in what is now called Kosovo, and this is in 1389. On the Slav side, not only were there Serbs, there were also a force of Catholic Knights Hospitaller, that's the Knights of Malta, uh, who came to oppose the Turks, as well as some Albanian chieftains, possibly including a certain John Castriotti, who was the father of Jerz Castriotti, who is our topic today. Whether he was really there or not, I can't tell you. I have found re- tons of things that say he was there and say he wasn't, and I really don't know. But he is so he may have been there. I really don't know. This battle well, okay. was absolutely insane. Unfortunately, we have very little in the way of detailed accounts of how it went down, like, you know, a play-by-play of what actually happened, but it had to have been intense. So we're talking about 30,000 versus 40,000, so that's a lot of guys. But at the end of the day, almost everyone was dead, and I mean literally almost everyone. Almost the entirety of both armies were dead. Prince Lazar was dead, Sultan Murad was dead, like, this was like an apocalyptic battle. Yeah, well, holy shit, you know, and that that's rare, isn't it? Because most of the time, like, one side starts losing and they rout. That's mm-hmm. how the battle ends. Yeah. But in this case, both sides were fighting so ferociously. Holy shit. <laughs> yeah, like, you know, some people, some people made it out, um, but it was the, the, the rate of casualties on both sides was enormous. And, of course, both leaders died, which is pretty rare. Yeah. Um, how the Sultan died is a matter of dispute. Um, there are various stories about it. Um, as the battle started to turn against the Serbs, and it was, you know, they were starting to lose, one of, a Serbian knight, and this is one of the stories, a Serbian knight named Milos Obilic uh, pretended to have deserted to the Ottoman forces, um, which, you know, wouldn't be unheard of because, you know, the Ottomans have lots of, like, local vassals of various nations with, uh, you know, joining them. Um, so he pretends that he's deserting to the Ottomans, and when he's brought into the presence of Sultan Murad, Obilich pulls out a dagger that he had hidden and shanks the sultan to death, after which the sultan's bodyguards immediately kill him. So that's one of the stories about how the sultan died. I'm going to go with that one as, as probably the coolest story. Yeah. Um, and this is cool because we actually have a letter um, from this very year, from 1389, a letter from the Florentine Senate to King Turco I of Bosnia, whose army, under a guy with an awesome name, Vlatko Vukovic, uh, had fought in the battle with the Serb on the Serb side, 
Um, this letter, which is, yeah, as I said, from that same year, so it's basically contemporary, um, says that, you know, Murad was killed in the battle, and it doesn't say who killed him, it doesn't give him a name, but it does say that there were 12 Serbian knights who actually fought their way through the Ottoman lines right up to the Sultan's tent to kill him. Um, and this shit. is, I want to read out this letter. Remember, this is literally written, you know, within a period of months after the events. Fortunate, most fortunate, are the hands of those twelve loyal lords, who, having opened their way with the sword, and having penetrated the enemy lines in the circle of chained camels, heroically reached the tent of Murat himself. Fortunate above all is that one who so forcefully killed such a strong lord by stabbing him with a sword in the throat and belly, and blessed are all those who gave their lives and blood through the glorious manner of martyrdom as victims of the dead leader over his ugly corpse. Oh my god, that's it, hardcore. <laughs> yes, yeah, so you have these twelve knights who like fight their way right up to the sultan and kill him and then all die on his body as they're surrounded. Jesus. <laughs> yeah, so as I said, wow. like we don't know how this battle actually played out, but it was intense we do we can say that much um one yeah. italian account uh which is from a little bit later from the early 15th century actually says that it was La prince lazar himself who killed the ottoman sultan but that seems less likely to me that the leader of one side yeah. was able to make it as far as the leader of the other side but i don't know as i said we have no idea what actually happened other than that almost everyone died well that's all you need to know <laughs> yep yep so despite the fact that both sides were pretty much wiped out, the Turks kind of had a huge empire to draw from, while the Balkan nations were pretty much defenseless after the loss because little tiny nations can't exactly just snap their fingers and get another 30,000 soldiers. Yeah. So Murad's son, Bayezid, um, actually, and this is great, so he hears that daddy's dead in this battle, and so he goes and he strangles his younger brother, Yakub. Um, so that he can be the sole heir of his father. Holy, wow. Okay, that's uh, that's a little barbaric, I will say, but, you know. Yeah, so, like, imagine if, yeah, imagine if you heard that your dad had died and your first instinct was to go murder your brother so that you would inherit. <laughs> uh, dad's dad's passed away, and he uh, he's going to leave the 1989 Honda Civic to one of you. You just go and strangle <laughs> Exactly, it's, it's pretty barbaric. Um... But it worked because Bayezid is now the sole heir to the Ottoman Empire. And with so much of the Balkans defenseless because of how many men they lost, he forces most of the remaining nobles in the Balkans to submit to his empire. And unfortunately, infighting between different parts of the Balkans and different parts of the old Serbian Empire, you know, led to various factions sort of willingly joining with the Ottomans to protect themselves against neighboring nobles who they think are going to try to take their land. And yeah, it's it's really unfortunate how just, you know, fractured it all is, and it leads to it being super easy for the Turks to take over. Yeah. Oof. Yep. yep. And um, after the Turks had um, destroyed another big army, and this was actually a multinational crusader army um, put together by people from all over, in a battle called Nicopolis in 1396, uh, their their grasp on the Balkans was pretty much solid. And they, they'd won with the help of a lot of subjected vassal lords. So a lot of, you know, Albanian and Serbian lords who'd become vassals of them were actually the ones fighting on the front line to defeat this army of their fellow, you know, European Christians. 
which this is, is some sad. mountain blade shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And at the, after it's this like, battle, oh, go on. Oh, I was just gonna make another mountain blade joke, but you know, it's a, depending on how blade. you play that. It's a good game, but for those of you who don't know, it's a it's a game set in like this medieval world where you can literally, tr you know, you start as a nobody with a horse, and then you g can work your way up to like. Uh, training an army of, you know, 500 soldiers, and you go into these massive battles with them, and there's, like, politics involved, so, like, when you capture a kingdom, it might still be loyal to its original, uh, its original kingdom, even though it technically belongs to you, all that crazy stuff. Um, but yeah, this is, that's what this reminds yeah. me of. It's no, just that's, like... in many ways, um, yeah, no, and of <clears> course, <throat> Mountain Blade then made Fire and Sword, which is based on Eastern Europe, um, so, yeah, there's... <laughs> There are some similarities. There oh. are some similarities. Oh, wow. Okay, yeah. Yep. Um, so anyway, um, the Ottomans have pretty much solidified their control over most of the Balkans, and they actually, at this point, advance as far as Hungary itself. So they're getting really far into Europe, and they mm. also wiped out most of the pockets of Byzantine power outside of Constantinople itself. So it's pretty much just the city of Constantinople hanging on to the old Byzantine Empire at this point. Damn. Um, wow. Also, after the Battle of Nicopolis, uh, Sultan Bayezid, who, as we know, is a pretty twisted guy with the whole brother strangling thing, had 3,000 Christian prisoners executed one at a time by either decapitation or dismemberment in front of him. What? Can you imagine sitting what? on a chair and watching 3,000 people get torn limb from limb one at a time in front of you? That is awful. That's some, uh, what's that fucker's name? Uh, really barbaric dude. Man, he built mountains of skulls. Who was that guy? Damn it, James was doing his whole podcast on him. Genghis um, Khan? Timur the Lame. Oh, Timur the Lame. Yeah. Excellent. Well, a lot like that. <laughs> yep. Um, so yeah, it's, Bayezid is a pretty sick dude, which we already knew since he murdered his little brother. <laughs> right. <laughs> so that's the situation in Southeastern Europe. It's a confused mess. Everyone is more or less cooperating with the Turks sometimes while simultaneously hating both the Turks and each other. There's no unity. There's backstabbing and treachery. And all the while, the Turks are pushing their vile empire further and further into Europe, leaving behind just a burning trail of slaughter and slavery. It's not good. It's not good yeah. at all. But this takes us up to the time when our topic for today, Jerz Castriotti, is born. So let's let's dive into the real topic. Let's so, do it. George, <laughs> uh, George was born in 1405 in north central Albania uh, to the previously mentioned John Castriotti, who was maybe at that one battle, the Battle of Kosovo, and right. who at this point, however, by 1405, had definitely been an Ottoman vassal for quite a while. So he's if okay. he was at the battle, he'd pretty soon after started working with the Turks. So that's his father. And then his mother is Voiceva, whose origin is unknown. She may have been Albanian. She may have been Bulgarian. She may have been Serbian. It's hard to tell. And it's honestly hard to tell with a lot of people from this part of the world at this time where they actually fit in. Because you'll have like one person and they'll have like three different ways their name is given depending on who's talking. You know, like... An Italian will, will refer to them by a Italian-sounding name. You know, they'll have a Albanian-sounding name. They'll have a Serbian-sounding name based on who's referring to them. And sometimes it's really hard to tell 
who they actually are. Some people we know, like, are Albanians or Serbs, but others we literally don't even know, like, which group they're from. That sounds like a Tolstoy novel. Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. it's a very confusing part of the world. So our, uh, our man here, Jean, the father of Jerge, um, was pretty good at playing both sides, as a lot of people are at this point. And he kept good relations with both the Venetians and the Turks. And he was also very willing to play games with religion. And at different times, he called himself Catholic, Orthodox, and Muslim, depending on who he was trying to buddy up to at the moment, the Venetians, the Serbs, or the Turks. So that... he's, he's willing to just... Whatever you want to hear, buddy. Whatever you want to hear. That's what I am. Yeah, that was. Uh, that reminds me of our, our that dude sabotaged Zevi. He did that at the end of his life after starting his little cult. Um, he was basically taken taken in by a by an Ottoman, and he was like, "Oh, I'm a Muslim now." They're like, "Okay," and then he would like go to the synagogues and like sing Jewish prayers and things like that, and then he would pretend like. He would go back, it, like, the sultan would come after him and be like, Hey, I thought you said you were Muslim. He's like, oh, I am. <laughs> and it's like, Classic. see my hat? It's, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's, you know, but that, that reminded me of that. It's, it's not, it's not a bad play, I will say. Yeah, if you can, if you can pull it off. Um, yeah. Yeah, so it's, it's pretty crazy. And, um, so in 1415, so this is when John is... 11 i guess yeah or not john when jerge is 11 um john sends jerge and his other son stanisha uh to be hostages at the sultan's court which this is a very normal thing for these sort of semi-independent vassals is that they'll their children will be taken away from them and raised in the sultan's court so that they don't misbehave because that's a really good way to prevent people from misbehaving is if you literally have their children. Ah, yeah. Um, this is and this is an old practice too. It doesn't go. Like oh yeah, this all is the, all the way back. Mm -hmm. This is a very very old thing. You know, back to the ancient world with Rome and Greece. Mm -hmm. So Jerge is a hostage at the Sultan's court, and he is conscripted into what's called the Devshirme system, which is a military institution where Christian boys from conquered areas are enrolled, and they're converted to Islam and then trained as military officers for the Sultan's army. Interesting. And it, yeah, this was it, was it was the custom at that time, that whenever a local chieftain was defeated by the Sultan, he would send one or more of his children to the Sultan's court where the child would live as a hostage, and thus the Sultan could control him by having his children. And we, we think of the word hostage as like somebody's robbing a bank it's hostages in the ancient world are common, and you're not treated badly as a hostage. Because if they if you're treated badly, people are unwilling are generally unlikely to go along with this agreement. If usually the hostages get killed, they'd rather just continue fighting you and not give up their children. So right. the hostages are treated well. Um, and in the case of the Ottomans, they they're sent to very good military schools in the Ottoman Empire and trained as officers. So well, that that's what's happening uh, like, with with Jerge. I was going to say that sounds like. Uh... Maybe like, I, I don't know, how, how, do you, how do you put it? Uh, I was going to have some clever analogy, but I, I've, I've, my brain just fell out, so I'm in... Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. That's fine. So after, <coughs> um, after he finishes this and is now in the, in the forces of the Ottoman Empire, uh, the Sultan gives Jerge control over one little estate, uh, which is near 
the territories controlled by his father as an Ottoman vassal. Um, but he's, you know, he's working for the Ottomans pretty, pretty directly. And his father, John, is actually kind of concerned about this and is afraid that the Sultan might order his own son, uh, Jerj, to occupy his territory because he's, while he's been a vassal for a long time, the Ottomans know he's really, really duplicitous. Mm -hmm. Um, and so they don't try, he knows he's not trusted. So he actually sends a message to Venice, um, letting them know that the Ottomans have like settled his son on a little estate next to him. And he's worried and just wants to let them know that, you know, he might have to fight the Ottomans soon. Um, so he's still trying to do this hedging between the different powers. And this is funny. He also sent an apology and requested forgiveness from the Venetian Senate for his son's participation in Ottoman military campaigns against Venetians who were, of course, you know, fellow Catholics. So if he right. really is playing, it's amazing how much he just plays things. Yeah, I was going to say that's, a, he's a he's a diplomat. There's a little little bit of Josiah Harlan in this guy. Yep, yep. But by, by 1430, uh, John ends up in open conflict with the Ottomans again. And after being defeated, he has most of his lands taken away. He is, he, you know, he's pretty much a nobody at that point. He loses his lands. He ends up having to go into exile in a monastery eventually. Um, meanwhile, his son is actively serving in the Sultan, serving the Sultan on military campaigns and getting a pretty good reputation as a very skilled military leader. Um, so people mm-hmm. are recognizing this guy, this guy knows what he's doing. And in recognition, in recognition of, uh, his ability as a lead, as a leader and his pretty successful service for the Ottoman empire, the Sultan, who by this point is Murad II, because thankfully that psychopath Bayezid is dead. Um, Murad II grants him a fiefdom, a little area to rule. And he gets the Ottoman title of Beg, which means Lord. And so because he's now ruling an area, he gets the title of Lord. And it gets attached at the end of your name, such and such, Beg. At the (laughs) same time... Beg? (laughs) Well, it would have been. But at the same time, um, he'd gotten a nickname among the Turks, Iskander which is Turkish for Alexander, due to his military prowess, you know, like Alexander the Great. They started calling him Alexander. Um, Nice. And so when you put Iskander and Beg together, you end up with the name Skanderbeg, which is what Jerj Skanderbeg would call himself for the rest of his life. That is so badass. So (laughs) Jerj is dead. There's only Skanderbeg now. (laughs) And so by the late 1430s, uh, Skanderbeg is ruling, on behalf of the Sultan, obviously, a pretty decent-sized chunk of Macedonia and Albania, and eventually works his way up to even being a regional governor and is the commander of about 5,000 cavalry. So, like, he's he's getting pretty high up in the Ottoman military to be commanding 5,000 cavalry. Yeah, that's no small deal. Though. Yeah, like, that's a lot. Cool. His cavalry's expensive. Right. <laughs> yeah. Anybody who's played any sort of Total War game knows cavalry is expensive. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so all this time, of course, he's participating in Turkish military campaigns against Christian Europe. At this point, primarily in Hungary, where they're fighting the forces of John Hunyadi, about whom we're definitely going to do an episode at some point, who was waging a long and determined war against the Turkish invaders. Hunyadi was a baller and we're definitely talking about him later. Okay. I promise cool. you. Um so that's so John or um George slash Skenderbeg is spending a lot of time on the front lines fighting for the Sultan. Because after all, he's Muslim. 
Um, right, right. In 1440, so when he would be 35, he is appointed as the district governor of an even larger area, which covers not only Macedonia, but also a big chunk of Albania. And during his stay in Albania as the Ottoman governor, he maintains very close relationships with the population in his father's former domain, because remember, his father loses his domain after rebelling. Um, so he's, he's trying to keep up good relations with the people who used to be his father's subjects. And he also tries to make good relationships with other Albanian noble families. And it's really hard to say what changed or what was going on in his mind, but it's a pretty safe bet that at this point, something was on the move with Skanderbeg based on his behavior and his sort of trying to buddy up to the Albanian nobles after having been, you know, a very successful Turkish military commander. Yeah, it seems like something under the surface might have shifted, you know? Yeah. Um, like, like his father... No, oh, go on. I was going to say, like, he's got this cushy job. He's got this... Uh, you know, not cushy, but you know, he's he's got command of a, a large army. He's a governor. You know, it's it's he's very successful. He's got it all. Yeah, and yeah, he's, he's, he's probably successful. like he's probably dealing with questions of like, well, is this all there is? <laughs> you know, yeah. like is this the best? Is like is my destiny to be just another um, tool of the Ottomans? Just you know, another big. Just a what? Another big. Another big. <laughs> all right, carry on. So, uh, like his father, um, who by this point was dead, he had died in exile at a monastery in 1437, uh, Skanderbeg tries to keep on good terms with the Venetians whenever it's possible, when he's not actively fighting them. And so he kept up a diplomatic and a trade relationship with them. Um, you know, he, he, he's, he, got, he got his father's sort of craftiness, and he doesn't want to unnecessarily have enemies. So when, he, when possible, he tries to keep, keep the Venetians happy. And around this time, he requests that a portion of his ancestral lands, his father's estates that he, you know, grew up on, be given to him as his personal property. But for whatever reason, the Turks say no. Right. That was going to okay. turn out to be a mistake. Oh, 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 uh oh. <laughs> yeah. Um, now that his father's dead, um, which there's there's a lot of talk, there's a lot of thought that maybe Skanderbeg was was you know, loyal to the Turks and such a good commander because for a lot of this, his father is kind of at the Turks' mercy and he doesn't want, you know, the Ottomans to try to get back at him through his father if he doesn't do a good job. There's some speculation on that. It's impossible to say for sure. But in any case, by this point, his father's dead. He now, you know, he doesn't have his ancestral lands. Um, so he's got, he's really got nothing that he had that would be actually meaningful to him to protect he's just there as a little governor and he doesn't really care um and so whatever loyalty Skanderbeg had or might have had to the ottoman empire seems to just kind of fade away well you know what they say when a man has nothing to lose and an army of five thousand cavalry at his disposal <laughs> um yeah uh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I yeah. fucked up that sentence. When a man with 5,000 <laughs> cavalry at his disposal has nothing to lose, you've got a problem. <laughs> yeah. Um, so this takes us up to 1443. And right at the end of 1443, uh, the Turks, under their leader, this general, Kasim Pasha, were getting their asses handed to them at a place called Nish in Serbia by a joint army of Serbs, Poles, and Hungarians led by the previously mentioned John Hunyadi. Um, 
who's just he's sorry he's a baller anyway um yeah after getting absolutely fucked in an initial run-in with the christian army the turks sent three armies in turn that all got wrecked one at a time by hunyadi in the same spot hella <laughs> and then he leads his forces to smash the remains of the three armies that have all tried to group together so oh, the battle God. of niche was actually five straight battles all won by john hunyadi damn against the turkish the ottoman empire man that ain't no big i mean that's not a big deal is it yeah <laughs> just the so, ottoman empire <laughs> in this last battle number five the turks really see how fucked they are and they try to buy some time by ordering a counterattack against the Christians, so they can sort of, you know, get their shit together. Uh, Kasim Pasha gives the order for Skanderbeg to lead the Albanian cavalry in. Little problem, though. Skanderbeg wasn't there anymore. He had uh -oh. been, uh, but when they try to give the order for him to lead a cavalry attack, he ain't there. It turns out he had taken about 300 of his closest followers and just peaced out. And wow. they couldn't find him. So, sucks to suck, Kasim. So, obviously, <laughs> the Turks were just BTFO'd in this battle, and Man. they had to retreat all the way back to Bulgaria, and, of course, they burned down every town and village they passed through, because that's just how Ottomans be. Salt the earth. Yeah. If you have any Southeastern European friends, you know how they feel about Turks, and if you know history, you know why they feel that way about Turks. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, we're so gonna have was... a heavy Turkish audience this this episode. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully, bring it on. So this was definitely a setback for the Turks because you know they didn't just lose Skanderbeg; they also lost a lot of other local vassals in the region who saw the defeat and thought this is a really good time to stop being Turkish vassals. Now that we just saw them get fucked by Hunyadi, yeah, the uh, strike a while the iron's hot. Yeah, there's a 15th century Greek historian uh, named Launikos Kalkokondiles uh, who, who actually wrote about this, and I have a quote here I want to read. Weary after Hunyadi forced the Ottomans to retreat in the Balkans in 1443, the old lords hurried on all sides to regain possession of their father's fields. Uh-oh. Hmm, reclaiming their father's fields. That kind of reminds me of Skanderbeg, doesn't it? Yeah, well, I'm seeing a little similarity there. Yeah, yeah so what happened at Niche? Uh, where did Skanderbeg go? Well, as it turns out, um, w once he's realized this is the time, he takes his little group of 300, and they immediately head to Kruja, which is a city and fortress in central Albania, which is nearby Skanderbeg's ancestral home. They okay. arrive there on the 28th of November, and Skanderbeg has it all ready to go. He has a forged letter, which alleges to be from Sultan Murad, to the governor, the Ottoman governor of Kruja, saying that Skanderbeg and his troops were supposed to move in and take over the city. So he had this, like, re this whole thing planned out and ready to go when the time was right. Man, he's got his bug-out plan. That's pretty funny. In yeah. Interesting as... Yeah, no, absolutely. And since the Sultan apparently wasn't checking his DMs that day, it worked. And the governor lets in Skanderbeg and hands over the city to him. And Skanderbeg immediately declares himself lord of the city. And some sources say that he had the Ottoman officials impaled on towers. Oh, but shit. All, that's only in, like, one thing. And I think that's probably a sort of mythological bleed over from another dude in this part of the world who fought the Turks, Vlad Tepes. Ah, because it, yeah, it's just it it's not well supported, but there is a legend that he did this. 
Well, okay. Yeah. And so now that he has his little fortress at Korea, uh, he goes around and captures less important surrounding castles in the region, and eventually gains control over the whole area that had been ruled by his father. Yay. Well, that's great. <laughs> he also announced that he was reverting away from Islam back to Christianity, and also declared that he was going to be the avenger of his family and his people against the Turks. Holy shit. <laughs> yeah, like, he was... He was serious. And oh, man. this revolution um, fought under the banner of his family, you know, the Castriotti, which was a black double-headed eagle on a red background, which, spoiler alert, is actually still the flag of Albania today. The Albanian Hell flag uh. is the family banner of Skanderbeg. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, and so thing things are getting serious with Skanderbeg. He also demands that anyone in his domain who had converted to Islam and thus, you know, converted to political loyalty to the Sultan, return to Christ Christianity or leave Albania on pain of death. Oof. Which is harsh, but with the whole situation of the region with the Turks, you can kind of understand why you wouldn't want people who had joined the religion of the Turks hanging around. Yeah, and since this is like a full-scale revolt against uh, a huge empire, um, again, striking while the iron's hot, you know, it's like... It's like, okay, we got the city, we've got some of the people, we've got to get their sworn loyalty to our cause, and what better way to do that than to force them all to deconvert from a religion that fundamentally stands against what we're trying to stand for right now. It would help. That's like, that's just a good PR move. Yeah, because it's not yeah. like these were really religious conversions. Like, as we saw with Skanderbeg's dad, um, you know, these people converting to Islam basically just meant saying you're willing to be loyal to the Sultan. Like, it's not like these were religious conversions in the first place. These were essentially political conversions. Right. So, it's not, you know, I don't think about this like of religious persecution. No, and it's, it certainly, I mean, we certainly think about it, about religion very differently today than we did back then, or, you know what I mean. Mm-hmm, yeah. Yeah. So, on, uh, on the 2nd of March, 1444, so the next year, uh, Skanderbeg summons all the Albanian and Serbian noblemen of the region to the Venetian-controlled town of Leja, and they establish a military alliance known as the League of Leja to oppose the Turks in the Balkans. The League of the League of Legends. <laughs> oh, 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 God. <laughs> anyway, uh, so Skanderbeg. <laughs> soon established control over most of central Albania with the League of Leja, while the north remained mostly held by Venice and the south remained mostly held by the Turks. So he's got the center between the two bigger powers. Uh-oh. Well... Yeah. Not a great place to be, but, you know, it's where he's from. So. <laughs> well, we just covered Romania not long ago, and they were between two massive powers and we kind mm -hmm. of fucked them over. So we'll have to see how this turns out. Yep. So, in addition to Albanians, uh, Skanderbeg's followers also included Slavs, uh, Vlachs, who would probably would count as Romanians, and Greeks. So, he's got, like, a, uh, his, like, little council of advisors is very, very multi-ethnic from sort of all these different Balkan groups. And he's got volunteers in his army, not only from, you know, Albania, but from neighboring countries, and even from further away. Like, people come from Western Europe to fight in his army against the Turks. Wow. Yeah. 
And it should also be remembered that many people in the Turkish armies and in the Turkish government apparatus were also from, you know, those same local ethnic groups since, like Skanderbeg, many people had, you know, willingly or unwillingly entered Turkish service. So not Uh-oh. everyone in Turkish armies, you know, are ethnic Turks. Right. There's well, a lot of these other groups in them, too. Which may cause some problems now that we're in full revolution mode. So, um, Sultan Murad II uh, realizes that this is a, this is kind of a problem. <laughs> and so he sends one of his most experienced generals, a guy named Ali Pasha, to crush the League of Leisure with a force of about 40,000 men. So, Skanderbeg uh, and the League are able to put together about 10,000 men, and they march out to meet Ali Pasha and his 40,000. So, the odds aren't exactly great for them, in terms of numbers. Yeah, it's... You got if you're one guy in that army, you got to kill four men without dying in order to win. <laughs> yeah. So as yeah. Ali and his huge army crest a hill on their march, they see the league's much smaller army arrayed at the bottom of the hill. And you know, Ali sees the numbers difference, and he's expecting a very quick victory. So he orders all his forces down the hill to attack and hopefully crush Skanderbeg's little army and end this League of Leja Albania bullshit once and for all. All right. But Skanderbeg knew the Turks, because remember, he'd been a Turkish military officer for decades. Right. And he knew their military, and he knew their arrogance very, very well, and expected Ali Pasha to do exactly what Ali Pasha did. So once the Turkish army was off the hill and barreling towards him, thinking this will be easy, Skanderbeg ordered his second detachment of his army, which had been hidden in forests behind the Ottoman army to then take the hill behind them. So he split oh. his army, which when you're already outnumbered four to one, that's a ballsy move, splitting your army. I was going to say, that's quite the gamble. Yeah, and uh, so he orders the second half of his army to take the top of the hill. And so as the Ottoman forces are now stopped at the bottom of the hill, engaging Skanderbeg's front line, the second detachment from the top of the hill charges down and hits the Ottomans in the back like a freight train. I mean, hammer Damn. and anvil, baby. Damn. <laughs> yeah, the oh, result... I, I... Go ahead. I was going to say, the result was devastating. Yeah. Absolutely devastating. The entire Ottoman army was routed, probably with about 20,000 casualties. Damn. Wow. Yeah, this just, was... Just, think, just thinking about that, like, holy shit. They must have been confusing as hell. <laughs> yeah, no, like, it's... It is a, a very impressive that he was able to pull this off. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so the Ottomans are like, oh, this this is kind of a problem. So they quickly send another <laughs> army, uh, this one of about 15,000, to try to pin down Skanderbeg and prevent him from moving into Macedonia, which is their nearest, you know, province, and they don't want him causing problems in their land, so they send an army of 15,000 to try to stop him. And they had heard uh, that the Albanian army had disbanded for the time being, because remember, this army is of the League of Leisure, so it's drawn from all these different lords from the whole region. It's not a professional standing army. So they heard that the Albanian army had pretty much broken up, and so they were like, okay, Okay, we uh, we can just rush in and try to try to pin down where Skenderbeg is. So they moved very very quickly and marched in, but they moved more quickly than carefully. And Uh-oh. this this army was identified by Skenderbeg's scouts, and so Skenderbeg lured this army of fifteen thousand into the Mokra Valley, 
and with a force of only 3,500, attacked and defeated the Ottomans, killing their commander and routing the whole force. So once again, four what? to one. How did they manage to pull this off? I mean... Probably because he knows Ottoman military tactics and strategies by heart because he was practicing them for 20 years. Yeah, he's like standing on top of a hill looking down and he's saying, congratulations, bitch, you just played <laughs> yourself. Yeah, and so he knows, like, at, you can presume that at any given point, he knows or at least has a very good idea what how the Ottomans are going to react to something. Whereas what do they know about Albanians? They, you know, they don't know Albanian, you know, military tactics. They have no idea what Albanians are going to do. They can't predict that. Whereas he knows exactly what Turks are going to do. Right. He's gone to their schools. He's learned their ways. He was one of their, you know, most successful cavalry commanders. Like, he knows. Right. Yeah, and the, the Ottomans sent two more armies that year, both of which were routed by Skenderbeg. Well... That's four armies in one year he just wiped out. That's crazy. And every time he does it, his men just get more and more experienced and more and more battle-hardened. Mm -hmm. They have fewer and fewer limbs, but they're, they're stronger limbs. <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep. So seeing these victories, the Hungarians, who'd been fighting the Turks for years, you know, under John Hunyadi, um, approach Skenderbeg and suggest that he bring the League of Legia into an alliance with the Hungarians and the papacy, uh, who obviously has a vested interest in Europe not being conquered by the Turks. Right. So in the spring of 1446, Skanderbeg sends messages to request support from the Pope and the Kingdom of Hungary for his struggle against the Ottomans and to sort of establish a diplomatic relationship there. Okay. Unfortunately, the Venetians were still trying to increase their own power in the region, um, mm. and they seized a disputed fortress called Dognum, which was held by an Albanian nobleman who was an ally of Skanderbeg. And so... You know, I, I'm not even going to go into this. I couldn't figure out who actually has any right to this fortress, but it was claimed by both an Albanian nobleman and by Venice, and Venice seizes it by force from him. So Skanderbeg okay. obviously knows you can't just abandon your allies, and this was one of his close allies. So Skanderbeg then seizes several Venetian towns on the Albanian coast and offers to restore them if the Venetians gave back the fortress of Dognum. Which seems reasonable to me, right? Like, right. that seems pretty fair. That's fair. But, Doing that would have been too reasonable, so instead the Venetians convinced the Ottomans to make another invasion of Skanderbeg's territory to coincide with the Venetian invasion. Oh, going with outside help again, you dumbasses. Outside help oh. of two, you know, we have now two world powers, basically. Yeah, yeah. Both converging on Albania. Yeah. So in 1448, despite being outnumbered by each army individually... So both the Venetian army and the Ottoman army are each bigger than his forces. Uh, Skanderbeg defeated the Venetian mercenary army and then wheels and marches across Albania to confront the Turks and their army. There are no sources that actually describe the battle, but we know that it started with a duel between champions. So the Turks were like, send out your strongest man and we'll send out our strongest man and we'll settle it that way so we don't have to fight. But the Turkish champion got uh, wrecked by the Tur by the Albanian champion, and so the Turks broke the agreement and attacked anyway, but got fucking wrecked by Skenderbeg, who actually captured the Turkish general, Mustafa Pasha, whom he then ransomed back to the Turks for a pretty decent chunk of money. Nice. 
to you know to fund his war, which is a good yeah. it's a good system. <laughs> However, um, when Skanderbeg left, uh, the Venetians then retook Dognum, that city, after he defeated their army and taken it back from them. So once he left to go fight the Turkish army, they retook it. But seeing that whole Turkish army get nay-nayed um, <laughs> convinced them that this was probably not a good war to pursue and that yeah. they should make peace with Skanderbeg. And so they made a treaty, and in the terms of the treaty, Venice actually got to keep Dognum. But they gave up other territories to the Albanians and agreed to pay an annual fund to the League to, you know, to fund their war and also gave them various privileges involving trade and taxation and boring stuff like that. So with the Venetians finally out of the way, Skanderbeg could focus his energy on the Turks. Aha, it's finally yeah. time. Yep. So John Hunyadi, our boy, was advancing with a fresh crusade against the Turks in the Balkans, and Skanderbeg was eager to join him and bring his army to fight. Unfortunately, as he's on his way up to uh, the... I guess they're in modern... I think they're in modern Serbia, wherever this is. But anyways, he's on his way to join Hunyadi's army... He is delayed by opposition from local Serb rulers who are allied to the Turks and are delaying him and, you know, not trying to prevent him from going through their area. And it causes a big slowdown to march his army through since they are trying to stop him. And so when the Hungarian army um, is finally defeated, and it's not just Hungarian, it's multi-ethnic like a lot of these armies because of the crusade, Skanderbeg was only 20 miles away rushing to get there in time. Oh, which just man. really sucks. Yeah. That this, uh, yeah, that they, that these those fucking local Serb rulers prevented Skanderbeg from getting there in time. Since if anyone could have, you know, successfully outwitted the Turks, it would have been him. Yeah. So Skanderbeg oh. returns back to Albania, uh, raiding the regions that had delayed him on the way. Which at that point, yeah, they, they probably deserved it. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Um... Yep. So just to be clear, it was John Hunyadi's army that he could not reach. Yeah. Um, and yeah, because Hunyadi uh, is advancing to fight the Turks, and the Turks send a huge army, and those two armies are in a long, sort of drawn-out battle with each other, and Skanderbeg is trying to get there to join Hunyadi's army. Right, and I'm assuming Hunyadi lost this engagement yeah. very badly. Yes, but it was a long, it was it was like a long engagement with massive casualties on both sides. So there's a very good chance that Skanderbeg's troops and expertise would have made it a Christian victory over the Turks. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. Because obviously Hunyadi was also a very skilled general. Right. Had to be. Yep. So in uh, in 1450, uh, Sultan Murad takes a massive army. Uh, we're talking about 100,000 men. Jeez. And besieges Kruya, which is the fortress city that is the center of the League and the center of Skanderbeg's power. Oh my the God. Skanderbeg leaves a garrison of 1,500 men under a trusted Italian officer named Vrana Conti, and Skanderbeg takes the remainder of the army, which at this point is also super multi-ethnic. He's got Slavs, he's got Germans, he's got Frenchmen, he's got Italians, because in addition to his you know primary for Albanian forces... He has volunteers coming from all over Europe to participate in what's basically a crusade against the Turks. Right. So he takes his army, um, which I think is probably around 10,000, and harasses the Ottoman camps around Kruya by continuously attacking the Sultan's supply caravans. 
Because obviously it takes a lot to keep an army of 100,000 men going. Yeah. And so you have yeah. to have a constant infrastructure supply. And so Skunderbeg is perpetually ambushing their caravans, raiding the outskirts of their camp. Because even just think how large of a camp you have to have for 100,000 men. Like you can't put a wall around that. Right. Yeah, <laughs> Yeah, exactly. and so Skunderbeg harasses them with his army while Vranaconti, with only 1,500 men, holds the city. The garrison, so those 1,500 men, repels three direct assaults on the walls by the Ottomans, each time causing massive casualties to the Turks. Man. Which, yeah, so we're talking 100,000 versus 1,500. That's insane. Yeah, so the Ottomans attempted to find uh, the city's water sources and stop them, but the city had springs, and so the Ottomans were unable to cut, cut it off from water. They tried digging tunnels under the city, but they all collapsed on the Turks while they were digging them. So this oh. is not going well. So they end up offering 300,000 silver coins, which I don't know how much this would equate to, but it's probable that a silver coin would have been between... It probably would have been about one day's wage for an unskilled laborer. So whatever you make on minimum wage in a day times 300,000. Jeez. Well, that's, that's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. Yeah, Oof. so they offer 300,000 coins and pr a promise of a high rank as an officer in the Ottoman army to Verona Conti if he would, you know, betray the city, and he tells them to fuck off. Good for him. <laughs> yeah. So um, by September of this year, for, of 1450, the Ottoman camp is in disarray. It's an absolute wreck. The castle still isn't taken. The morale is just in the pits. There's diseases, people are hungry because Skanderbeg is raiding all the caravans. Like, it is a mess. It's an absolute mess. And so the Sultan Murad realizes that he just, he can't take Korea before the winter. And obviously you don't want to have 100,000 men camped out in the winter in a hostile territory with your supply lines being raided. Right, no, of course like, That's not. how you get 100,000 dead icicles. <laughs> it's a popsicle party. Yep. So in October, he lifts the siege and retreats back into the Ottoman Empire. Oh. Uh, the Turks suffered 20,000 casualties during this siege and many, many more during their escape from Albania. It's unclear the numbers of how many more died, but it's probably at least another 10,000 died on the escape from Albania. Holy crap. Yeah, that's a lot. That's a lot of dead people. That is a lot. Oof. A lot of dead people. Yeah. So, although Skenderbeg was victorious and drove the Turks out, the presence of such a massive army had really devastated his domains and just destroyed his resources. Because just think, you know, they've they've eaten everything, they've burned the towns, they've, you know, destroyed bridges, they've just, they've wrecked things. Yeah. And so, his domain is a wreck after this. And because of that, many of his local allies also had aligned themselves with the Turks. They think, okay, there's no way Skanderbeg's coming out of this, and I don't want my personal stuff being destroyed, so I'm going to declare that I'm independent of Skanderbeg and align with the Turks. Pathetic. Yeah. Fortunately, uh, the Pope actually came in clutch and started funding Skanderbeg since he was, you know, out of resources with all his land wrecked. Well, that's good. good for the Pope doing something yeah so skanderbeg's able to kind of consolidate around his fortress city of kruya and eventually regains most of his lost lands which is good yeah. and then uh also in that year um 
In exchange for assistance in his campaign, Skanderbeg agrees to become a vassal of the King of Aragon, which sets a kingdom in eastern Spain that also rules part of southern Italy because dynasties are really confusing in the 15th century. Um, and they'd been a long supporter of his, and so Skanderbeg agrees to become a vassal lord of the King of Aragon in exchange for more military support. He also gets married around this point, so good for him. Excellent. Yep. So yeah, he's he's you know he's meeting the life goals. He's he's uh, living his best life. Yep. Yep. So uh, during a wait, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. How old is he at this point? Like fourteen fifty. Uh, so we're in fourteen fifty. He was born in fourteen oh five. So he's forty. So he's forty five. Wow. He is pretty old to get married, yeah, actually. Well, especially back then. Yeah. So during about the next five years after this disastrous siege of Kruya that the Turks did, Albania actually was kind of able to take it easy for a little bit because the uh, the Sultan was busy trying to conquer the last vestiges of the Byzantine Empire, i.e. the city of Constantinople. However, in 1452, they finally took Constantinople um, under Sultan Mehmet II because Murad had died in the meantime. And so now there was nothing else for them to do except continue their campaign westward. Gotcha. Yeah. So Metmet uh, gets it, gets the ball rolling and orders his first campaign against Skanderbeg, sending an army of about 25,000 under two leaders, Tahip Pasha and Hamsa Pasha, uh, to confront Skanderbeg and try to deal with this whole Albanian issue. Skanderbeg was able to raise about 14,000 troops. So he's not like super outnumbered. It's only like, you know, two to one instead of four to one. Yeah. And the Turks split their force in order to try to surround him, but he's able to attack each army in turn. And so he actually has a tiny numerical advantage. It's about equal each time. He hits one army, knocks it out, and then hits the other army while they're trying to encircle him. So he preempts them before they're able to get into position. Well, Once again, absolute genius. I was going to say, like, his it's his numbers are never good, but his strategy apparently is amazing. Because yeah. 14,000 versus 25,000 just cranking out the victories. You know, you, say, you protected a city with 1,500 men in it from 100,000 dudes. Like, you got to know something, yeah. you know? Yeah, he knows, he knows what yeah. he's doing. Um, and in this battle, uh, the commander of the Turkish army, Tahit Pasha, uh, got vibe checked by a Albanian arquebus. So remember, we're in the 15th century, so we have incredibly crude firearms that aren't that effective. But one of them was effective enough to kill Tahit Pasha. Wow. Yay. Vibe check. <laughs> so uh, this victory uh, brought back many of Skanderbeg's old allies who had abandoned him uh, because they're seeing, oh, oh, he's still got it. He's still got it. Yeah. And another good thing that happened is that a long-standing rivalry and opposition between Skanderbeg and another really important Albanian uh, noble family, which he'd had a long, long issues with, were ended because the Pope actually stepped in and like had a sit-down with everybody and got a reconciliation. So once again, good for the Nobility counseling by the Pope himself. What a time to be alive. <laughs> yep. And uh, in, in the next year, uh, Skanderbeg defeated yet another Ottoman army that attacked, once again, outnumbered, he's, pretty much the usual. I was going to say, he's doing this in his sleep at this point. He's got the Ottoman invasion app on his phone, and it <laughs> saved his custom order, 
And he just keeps ordering <laughs> the same thing. And it's like, yeah, I figured out how to get, you know, half a pizza extra by cheating this app. And so I'm saving money. But instead of pizza, it's Turkish army, Turkish soldiers. <laughs> yep. Oh, basically. Wow. Basically. So in 1455, uh, Skanderbeg besieged an Ottoman-held fortress at Berat, um, which is in Albania. Um, but when a Turkish relief force approached, Skanderbeg actually had to split his forces ah. because he had to deal with this approaching other army. <laughs> so although jo Skander Jokes on you, he's strongest when he has to split his forces. <laughs> so Skanderbeg successfully routed the Turkish relief army, which was outnumbered him like three to one so of this is normal um however unfortunately the other army that was left to besiege the castle was itself ambushed and because they had they they kind of dropped the ball and didn't take proper precautions and they actually get ambushed by the turks and wiped out so even though skanderbeg pulled off what was a really impressive victory someone else's incompetence made the whole thing kind of a, a mixed bag <laughs> Yeah. And ha this partial defeat also lost Skanderbeg the support of many Albanian nobles. These are really fair-weather friends. Yeah, geez. I was going to say, um, these Albanian nobles. Oof. Yeah, and one of these Albanian nobles who defects is a guy named uh, Moisi Golemi, who was one of his pretty close military, you know, commanders. And this Moisi Golemi defects to the Turks and then leads an Ottoman army against Skanderbeg in the next year. Oh, Because oh. the Turks are like, ah, you know how he works. You know, you were one of his officers. You should lead this army against him. Yeah, uh, this is going to go well for, for Mr. Golemi, I bet. Yep. So, uh, Skanderbeg gets his army, which is, of course, drastically outnumbered, as it always is. Always. And meets, meets Golemi, and Golemi challenges Skanderbeg to single combat, you know, having a duel out in front of everybody to settle oh. it. But when Skanderbeg actually starts to move out to meet him, is like, yeah, let's, let's fucking throw down, uh, Golemi chickens out and runs back <laughs> to his forces and orders an oh attack. Oh my god, come on, dude. Like, you came up with this idea. <laughs> you can just see it, yep. too. He, like, goes out and he's like, where is Skanderbeg? And this, like, six-foot-five giant steps out of the crowd with, like, a massive battle axe and nothing but rage in his eyes. And this little <laughs> guy, Golemi, goes, oh, shit. And then he, like, spins around. He goes, fight, men! <laughs> well, that's the thing is, Golemi knew all about Skanderbeg because he was one of his officers. So I don't know if he was, like, expecting that Skanderbeg wouldn't take it and so then the Albanians would be demoralized having seen Skanderbeg refuse the challenge. I don't know what, what it was, but... Yeah, he chickens out and runs back and orders the charge. And Skanderbeg then orders his cavalry, who are excellent, uh, to charge themselves. And his cavalry smashed through both lines of the Turkish army. And it's just kind of a melee chaos at that point. And Skanderbeg's right in the midst of it. And he even gets thrown off his horse, uh, but fortunately is fine. But, like, he's not, he doesn't lead from the back. Yeah, obviously, yeah. Yeah, he's, yeah, he's right there in the thick of things. And Golemi... And the Turks were routed with casualties of about 10,000 men versus about 1,000 casualties on Skanderbeg's Man, side. Man, you know, I don't know how to, else to put this, but this is like... <sighs> His KD ratio is off the charts. I was going to say, he's like a master at Call of Duty at this point. Um, but I was also going to say something like, it really does come down to like, okay, so what kind of weapons were they using? What kind of morale did they have? What was the motivation of each side? 
you know, and who was fighting who? Because like in in Skanderbeg's army, you've got you know people from all over uh, Europe fighting against you know people from Turkey and uh, or the Ottoman Empire, and it's like I don't know, like it seems like there's something about the Turkish forces that's itself a little bit demoralized, and I don't know if. I mean, at, th- at this point, they probably are pretty demoralized because how many times have they tried to defeat Skanderbeg? Yeah, a couple It's like, dozen. ah, yes, let's do our yearly failed invasion. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, Golemi goes back to the Turks after having been routed. He ends up back in the Ottoman Empire. And obviously, he's not exactly popular. And so he ends up being hated by everyone, is in massive debt, and he's just, you know, no, they're never going to trust him with an army again. So he actually decides to try his luck with Skanderbeg's mercy and sneaks away in the middle of the night and rides to Albania, where Skanderbeg receives him and actually pardons him and gives him his ancestral lands back. What a bro! He had yeah, no bro, reason to do that. Yep, and bonfires were lit and a big celebration was had to celebrate the return of Golemi. And Skanderbeg also ordered that people should not publicly talk about his treachery. Wow. So it's like, wow, he's just he's trying to make him comfortable. Like, that's a seriously nice thing to do. I was going to say, like, this was a guy who, shortly before this, was about to kill your ass in single combat. He watched you freak out and run away and order his Turkish army to attack. Lost horribly, and then he comes to you and says, I'm sorry. And it's like, back then, it's like the typical thing to do would be like, apology accepted, now off with your head. But Skanderbeg's not about that. It's really interesting. Kind of like, uh, you remember remember Charles Martel? Remember how freaking merciful he was? Yeah. Yeah, no, (laughs) plot twist, mercy is a quality of great men. Yeah. That's weird. Pretty interesting. (laughs) Who knew? So in uh, in the next year, 1456, uh, Skanderbeg's son, John, is born. Yay. Yay. Yay, party. Unfortunately, this has an unforeseen consequence. Um, now that he has a son and an heir, Skanderbeg's nephew, who's named Hamza, betrays him and defects to the Ottomans because Hamza was going to be his heir if he didn't have any children. And so now that Skanderbeg has a son, Hamza, who's apparently a bitch, uh, defects <laughs> to the Ottomans. Of course. Yeah, fucker. Um, And so he becomes an advisor to an Ottoman general, Isak Beg, who leads an army of 70,000 into Albania to deal with Skanderbeg once and for all. Amazing. The birth of one person causes an invasion of Albania with an army of 70,000. Yep. Man. So Hamza had been actually one of Skanderbeg's pretty close uh, lieutenants, and he was especially skilled apparently in tricks and tactics and ambushes and stuff you know the kind of thing Skanderbeg was was very good mm. at Hamza was apparently also very very good at and was one of his you know trusted officers for that point so Skanderbeg didn't want to risk trying his usual methods of trapping and tricking and stuff because he knows that Hamza knows how he works so instead Skanderbeg has to play you know evasive and avoid the Ottoman army and avoid giving giving them you know open battle because he knows his usual tricks aren't going to work so he 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 plays hard to get and uh, this gives the Ottomans and everyone else really the impression that you know Skanderbeg Skanderbeg's pretty much defeated like you know we've we've been here for months and we still haven't had a battle with him so he's probably just you know his army's probably disbanded like he's he's gone he's gone so they, they get sloppy. They get lazy. Yeah, like you do. They get, yeah, like you do. And they think, ah, Skanderbeg does it. Does. 
whatever. It doesn't matter at this point. But on September the 2nd, 1456, Skanderbeg attacks the Ottoman forces out of nowhere by surprise in their encampment, which they're just all chilling in, like playing playing on apps on their phone. <laughs> like they, they're so at ease. And he just storms in with his army and kills 15,000 Ottomans. God. And captures another 15,000. Gee whiz. And also captures uh, 24 Ottoman standards. So that's like a big deal when you capture enemy standards because that's, you're supposed to, if you're in a war, you're supposed to do everything you can to prevent your standard from being taken by the enemy. Right. And also, of course, all the riches in the camp that they had plundered from the region. Time. Um, so it's basically got his stuff back, more mm -hmm. or less. And so Hamza was captured and was sent to a dungeon in Naples. Could have been killed. Could have been worse. Yeah, could have been killed, but sent to a dungeon in Naples. But this war was, as you can imagine, getting really, really expensive. Um, and by the next year, 1457, Skanderbeg is, you know, in very dire financial straits for keeping his army going. And so he requests uh, financial help from the Pope, who at this point is Pope Calixtus. But the Pope himself was in a pretty tough financial situation, and so he was, wasn't able to do more than send a one boat of soldiers and a small sum of money, but he promised that as soon as he was able to, he would send more ships and more money, but that was really all he had at the moment. But he also actually uh, made an official proclamation, the Pope did, and declared Skanderbeg to be the Captain General of the Holy See in the war against the Ottomans, and christened Skanderbeg with a new title, Athleta Christi, the Champion of Christ. Whoa. <laughs> Whoa. Oh, that's a hell of a title. Yeah, that is say. a hell of a title. So yeah, the, the, the Pope was, yeah, he was still like, you know, he wanted to do more, but he just didn't have the resources at the time. Unfortunately, around the same time, uh, Skanderbeg's old ally, Alfonso, the King of Aragon, the one who he'd agreed to become a vassal of, died and his son Ferdinand who was ruling in Naples and southern Italy wasn't nearly as able of a ruler and didn't really have the the authority that his father had so Skanderbeg actually ended up having to help Ferdinand retake parts of his kingdom that rebelled which well that's I nice mean, of Skanderbeg you got to gotta do. do what you got to do man i mean yeah i mean yep so in 1460 uh king ferdinand was having serious problems with a uprising in southern Italy and asked Skanderbeg to send troops. But this invitation uh, worried King Ferdinand's political rivals that he's, you know, wanting to bring in these troops from Albania. And one important Italian nobleman named Sigismondo Malatesta actually threatened that if Ferdinand brought Skanderbeg in, Malatesta would defect to the Ottomans. Come on! So, fuck you, Malatesta. Oh, man. Malatestical, you know? Oh, man. Yep. Oh, okay. Um, so one of Ferdinand's main rivals was the prince of the Italian city of Toronto, Giovanni Orsini, and he tried to dissuade Skanderbeg from coming to help Ferdinand and offered him an alliance and money and all sorts of things to, to switch sides, basically, and betray Ferdinand. But Skanderbeg just wasn't buying it, and he actually answered... And there's a great message. He sent a message saying that, you know, he owed loyalty to the family of Ferdinand, especially in times of hardship. Dang. And more than any other time. And he also said that, you know, as an Albanian, he would never betray his friends. And that the Albanians are the descendants of Pyrrhus of Epirus, who was a king in the 3rd century BC who actually invaded 
southern Italy and was an incredibly good general. And so the fact that he's bringing that up is like, by the way, don't forget, we're the descendants of Pyrrhus. Wow. Is kind of, is pretty baller. That's pretty badass. Pyrrhus invaded Italy. Gotta say, that's pretty badass. Yeah, no, absolutely. And so Skanderbeg comes with his forces, and in a couple of battles, he defeats the Italian and also French for, I don't even know why, because geopolitics are confusing, forces sent by Orsini, and he thus secures, you know, King Ferdinand's throne in the south of Italy, and he returns to Albania. Just like that. Um, having, help, having helped out his buddy. And during the next few years... Skanderbeg, no surprises there, defeats three more Ottoman invasions. Impressive, but like, not just, surprising. Surprising. Yeah, at this point, like, it's it's just, you know, par for the course. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a really good way of putting that. So in, uh, in November of 1463, uh, the new Pope, Pius II, tries to organize a new crusade against the Ottomans, and the Venetians and Skanderbeg are the first two to sign up. They're like, hell yeah, let's do it. And this is so with the help. This is fourteen sixty three. So how old is he? Fifty eight at this point. Yep. Um. 50, yeah, fifty eight. So he's getting up there. Yeah, he's getting up there. So with the help of the Venetians, since they're now on the same side, uh, Skanderbeg goes on the offensive. The Ottomans send an army of fourteen thousand under the command of a guy named Shereme, uh, to reinforce a fortress in Ohrid, which is in Macedonia which is, you know, the, the nearest sort of stable Ottoman province. But Skanderbeg lures the Ottomans out of the gate of Okhred and pretends to retreat. Basically, he pretends to siege it and then pretends to retreat and gets them to chase him out. Ah, clever. Bad move. And so then he turns around, crushes the garrison, and takes the city. And the, the those reinforcements... That were sent, so that army of 14,000, 10,000 of them are killed, and Sheremet's son himself is captured. Jeez, now you got a hostage. Yeah, so, and they, they end up ransoming him back to get more money to continue their war. But yeah, just, you know, Skanderbeg knows how to play this yeah. game, and he plays it well. He is not fucking around. Unfortunately, yeah, unfortunately, during this time, Pope Pius, who was trying to organize the crusade, died what was still being planned, and so a force of 20,000 soldiers from all over Europe, which were being assembled, never departs for Albania to back up Skenderbeg, because the Pope who was in charge of it all died. I mean, but let's be honest, does he really need it? I mean, he's Skanderbeg. I mean, it'd be, it'd be nice. Yeah. <laughs> it'd be nice. Uh, so the next year, um, 1465, in April, at uh, the Battle of Vaikal, Skanderbeg fought and defeated yet another army uh, led by a dude named Balaban Pasha, which just makes him, I don't know, for some reason in my head, makes him really fat that his name is Balaban. <laughs> it has to be. Well, and I, I just thought of this. I was like, oh my God, he did it again. But it's like, at this point, you your army would be pretty demoralized staring this guy in the face. Um, they're like, mm -hmm. all right. All right, team. This is an important. This is an important game. We're about to go up against Peyton Manning. Uh, I know you're all twelve, but and he's <laughs> he's literally crushed other twelve-year-olds in this uh, in this game. But uh, you're gonna be fine, and it's gonna be different this time. And you know, there's just twelve-year-olds. Like, uh, how do we even throw the football? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So Skanderbeg wins, but there was a complication. Uh -oh. So during this battle, um, there was sort of an Ottoman, a small Ottoman counterattack 
that actually captured some very important Albanian noblemen. Because um, it was kind of, you know, by happenstance of where they counterattacked was where there were some very important people mm. who were captured. And this included um, the cavalry commander, Moisi Golomi, the one who had uh, come back for forgiveness, was, you know, once again leading forces with Skanderbeg, and he was captured. Skanderbeg's nephew, Muzaka, was captured, and 18 other important officers of Skanderbeg's forces were captured. Uh-oh. These prisoners were immediately sent to Istanbul, the former Constantinople, where they were skinned alive what? one at a time over the course, and they were kept alive in a state of being skinned for 15 days what by the, the Turks. Fuck? And after they were dead, they were cut into pieces and thrown to the sultan's dogs. Skander begs pleased to have them back, and he, you know, he offered ransom. He offered to exchange Turkish prisoners. Um, everything was rejected because the Turks were fucking bastards, and so instead they skinned them all alive and kept them alive for two fucking weeks, being skinned, and then oh. cut them to pieces and threw them to the dogs. That is disgusting. Yeah. Um. Later that same year, two more Ottoman armies invaded Albania. Uh, the commander of one of these armies was that same Balaban Pasha. And the plan was that they were going to do sort of a double flank envelopment on either side of him with the two armies. But like he'd done before, Skanderbeg was able to hit each army before they got into position and defeated both and had all the Turkish prisoners, including Balaban, killed. And I can't say that I blame yeah, him. Yeah, not after that. Because he, yeah, he'd, he heard, he had heard about this. Like, he knew what had happened. And so, at this point, I can't really say that I blame him for executing all Turkish prisoners. Yeah, that's, uh, it got ugly pretty fast, you know? Man. Yeah. As I said, if you ever know, if you ever met someone from Southeastern Europe, you know how they feel about Turks. Right. Okay, well, there we go. Now, uh, in 1466, the Sultan, Mehmet II, personally led an army of 30,000 into Albania and laid siege to Kruja for a second time, you know, just as his father had done 16 years earlier. This okay. time, the garrison was defended by about 4,400 men. Oh, okay, that's better. The siege, yeah, the siege lasted for several months, and, of course, there's just destruction and murder all over the region as the Sultan is ravaging it. But, like his father, Mehmet realized that he was not going to be able to take Kruja and siege, and so he returned to Istanbul himself. But he left behind most of his army to continue the siege and also to build a big fortress next door to Kruja as a base from which to continue the siege. <laughs> he really wanted that city. Damn. Yeah. Unfortunately, Skanderbeg was pretty much out of money, and... And at this, during this time, he was in Italy trying to raise funds and get donations, but he only had very limited success. Like, he got some money from the Pope, he got some money from other Italian cities, but it wasn't, it wasn't nearly as much as he'd hoped for. But when he returned, uh, despite this setback, he, together with other Albanian nobles, ambushed and slaughtered a Turkish reinforcement column which was headed to join the Siege of Kruja and then wheeled around and broke the siege itself. And, oh, this is when Balaban was killed. I thought, no, I, I overstepped and said he was killed in the previous battle. So, no, Balaban survived that one, came back this time, and this time got fucked. Okay, okay, got it. Yeah, <laughs> unimportant detail. Balaban! But after Balaban... <laughs> Balaban... <laughs> so after Balaban was dead and the Turks were pretty much defeated, 
there's still 10,000 of them in the camp, and they're completely surrounded. And those 10,000 ask to leave to freely to, you know, go back to Ottoman territory and offer to surrender, you know, everything, all the, all the loot that was in the camp to the Albanians, which is good because it was fucking belonged to them in the first place. <laughs> and Skanderbeg was actually uh, ready to accept this. But many of the Albanian noblemen were like, mm, don't think so. And so Skanderbeg was like, you know, was like, okay, if that's what everyone but me wants, we won't let them go. And so the Albanians began to annihilate the surrounded Ottoman army. Um, which part of it made it out, so they basically just attacked on all sides, and many of the Ottomans died, but part of them were able to escape. But yeah, I can see not, not letting them walk away at this point. Yeah, it's it's starting to become an ugly, long war, you know? This has been most mm -hmm. of Skanderbeg's life. All of his life. Yeah, liter yeah literally. Um, but it's funny that, yeah, he was, he was, you know, willing to let them leave, but it was everyone else who was like, yeah, no. Yeah. Mm hmm so after this, um, after the Al after the Albanians uh, kill most of the Ottoman army, but part of it makes it away and flees to Macedonia, Skanderbeg then lays siege to Elbasan, which is that little fortress that the Turks had built for the siege. But he is unable to take it because he just he doesn't have the resources to continue a siege because you know sieges are expensive. You have to support all these people in one place, and he just doesn't have the resources. So he has to break off the siege, and the Turks keep their stupid little fortress. Ugh. And then the next year, the Ottomans sent a another invasion force, which Skanderbeg does not have the, the resources to confront, so he actually has to withdraw to the coast. And the Ottomans siege Korea a third time, once again failing to take it, but once again ravaging the whole region. So at this point, like, you know, they're burning what's already ashes. Yeah, it's just, man, the whole area must have just looked like I don't know, that ghost town that somehow has a Walmart that everyone shops at within 50 square miles. Just, that's what it looks like. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say it was going to be like a, a fallout, you know, post-nuclear waste. Well, that too. What's the difference anyway? <laughs> yep. Yep. And so during, uh, during these repeated Ottoman incursions, as we talked about, the Albanians had suffered huge amounts of casualties. Um, especially, you know, the civilian population is just getting enslaved and murdered by the Turks every year. And the economy is, of course, in ruins because all the farms are burnt and it's hard to run a business when there's Turks in your yard. <laughs> and in addition to that, a huge portion of the nobility, which were the people who, you know, would naturally be able to organize effective resistance, were also dead. Yeah. Um, like, it's bad. So, in 1468, Skanderbeg calls together all the remaining Albanian nobles to a conference, once again at Leja, to try to discuss a war strategy and restructure the League and figure out what their next move was. Unfortunately, before the planned conference began, Skanderbeg fell ill with malaria and died on the 17th of January, 1468, um... So he would have been, yes, he was 62 at that point. Man. <coughs> and although resistance continued for several decades by both Albanian nobles and the Venetians, without the leadership of Skanderbeg, it all slowly fell apart. And in 1501, uh, so, you know, 33 years later, the last Venetian castle was evacuated and the Ottoman conquest of Albania was complete. Ugh. And they did eventually take Kruja. Damn it. <laughs> I was hoping that would be the Nevertheless, one. Nevertheless, yeah. yeah. You know, during this time, this like 25 years, the Ottoman Empire's expansion had ground to a halt. 
Like, how many times did they try to invade through Albania and get fucked? Again and again. Like, he basically stopped the Ottoman Empire from expanding for 25 years. Yeah, and the only the reason they... Bag, the only reason they eventually won is that the figurehead died, but also they had no more money to keep fighting. It was a war of attrition, basically. Yeah. So Skanderbeg is credited uh, with being one of the main reasons um, that the Ottomans weren't able to expand further into Western Europe, which gave the Italian states and the other parts of Europe a lot more time to prepare for the Ottoman arrival and ultimately contributed to the success of Europe in repelling and eventually reversing the Turkish onslaught. Um, the trouble that Skanderbeg caused for the Ottoman military was so great that when the Ottomans finally did take Liege, they found his grave in the Church of St. Nicholas, and they opened it up and they made amulets out of his bones, believing that these would magically give bravery to whoever wore them. Well, you know, there's nothing like a little corpse desecration after you invade a place. Yeah. Yeah. But it's weird because they weren't just like, you know, throwing his bones out. They were like, these bones might give us <laughs> magic bones. Yeah, like, <laughs> weird flex, but okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, as I said, just the amount of damage he did over his lifetime to the Ottomans is indescribable. Um, people have sort of reckoned out, and uh, his people from, you know, from approximately this time a little bit after tried to figure out approximately how many people Skanderbeg himself killed and it's estimated that he with his own hand killed probably about 3000 Ottomans during his holy existence. shit <laughs> yeah because you know as we said he like he he led from the front yeah wow and these are some of the the stories that are that were told about Skanderbeg that I wanted to I wanted to end with uh, so one is that he never slept for more than five hours a night. Okay, yeah, I can. That, I can that's you. That. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean that's me. Um, he could cut two men in half with a single stroke of his sword. Okay. <laughs> um, he could smash through iron helmets with his sword because of how hard he would hit, it would cleave the helmet in Jeez. half. He could kill a wild boar with one stroke. And that he could behead a water buffalo with one stroke. Wow, that's impressive. That may be the most impressive which, thing. Which, if you've seen those, they, their necks are huge. Yeah, yeah. I mean... Yeah, so these... But I believe it. I mean, I don't think I, I could cleave the head off a chicken. <laughs> this guy's <laughs> knocking the heads off a water buffalo. Unbelievable. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's... um. Yeah, Skanderbeg is an amazing figure. And as I said, his personal banner is now the flag of Albania. Um, because he really, a lot of Albanian identity as a nation goes back to Skanderbeg as their inspiration, which is really weird because after Albania was conquered by the Turks, the Albanians actually mostly converted to Islam. Interesting. You still have, you still had minor and still have to this day, minority Christian populations of both Catholic and Orthodox Albanians, but the majority of Albanians converted to Islam, which makes modern Albanian nationalism really weird because they revere Skanderbeg as their national hero, but his whole heroism was preventing the Muslims from conquering Albania. So I don't know how that works, being a modern Albanian nationalist when you are a Muslim, but you revere the guy who spent 25 years preventing your country from being conquered by Muslims. Hey, I don't care what your religion is, but everybody respects stones like that. 
possibly, but it does seem hard to found a nationalist movement based off a guy who wanted to keep your co-religionists out. <laughs> well, that was a crazy yeah. story. No, I told you it was it was wild. Yeah, it was wild. I'm glad you drank eight shots of espresso before this. That's eight to ten shots of espresso. You know, you, you do what you have yeah. to do. This is our longest episode in a while. It yeah. is. It is. You know, we're nowhere near Goebbels, but this one Holy is pretty shit, long. Holy shit, Goebbels. So. Oh, never again. <laughs> I I agree. Yeah. So, what do you say we uh do you have any any questions or anything you want to discuss before we bring it to Not an really. End? I'll be honest, I'm getting pretty tired and that story was a hell of a ride. So, I I'm about ready to head to the surface. Okay, let's do it. All right, off we go. So, Aaron, you got any big plans for the winter? Remember, where you are now, there's actually going to be snow, which fortunately should delay the Turks. <laughs> uh, uh, I have no big plans for the winter besides, like, figuring out a way to have a, well, to move forward. Little steps forward with with life things, you know what that's like. What about you? Any big plans? You should, I was going to say you should start by building a snowman. Uh, yeah, yeah. A Skanderbeg snowman. Okay, now that's better. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, not really. Uh, just kind of also figuring out my life, more yeah. or less. You know, little yeah, things. That's what, that's what we're things. all on right now. It's a weird drug, and it's hard to get off, but that's where we are. And I think that means it's time to bring the show to an end for today. If you hate us, you're probably right, so do consider funding the show by becoming a Patreon, uh, patron on patreon.com. Uh, our cover art was created by Ian Patterson of Ian Patterson Illustration. You can view more of his wonderfully whimsical work at www.ipattersonillustration.com. And with all that being said, we'll close out and let the sounds of some fucking crusade play you out. Feel the music with a Sony Walkman. The Sony Walkman is a tiny stereo cassette player with truly incredible sound. Put on a Walkman and see the world in a whole new light. Sony Walkman. The Walkman from Sony, the one and only.